Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. To my tennis family and beyond. Of all the gifts that tennis has given me over the years, the greatest, without a doubt, has been the people I've met along the way. My friends, my competitors, and most of all, the fans who give the sport its life. Today, I want to share some news with all of you. As many of you know, the past three years have presented me with challenges in the form of injuries and surgeries. I've worked hard to return to full competitive form, But I also know my body's capacities and limits and its message to me lately has been clear. I am 41 years old. I've played more than 1,500 matches over 24 years. Tennis has treated me more generously than I ever would have dreamt and now must recognize when it is time to end my competitive career. The Labour Cup next week in London will be my final ATP event. I will play more tennis in the future, of course, but just not in Grand Slams or on the tour. This is a bittersweet decision because I will miss everything the tour has given me. But at the same time, there is so much to celebrate. I consider myself one of the most fortunate people on earth. I was given a special talent to play tennis and I did it at a level that I never imagined for much longer than I ever thought possible. I would like to especially thank my amazing wife, Mirka, who has lived through every minute with me. She has warmed me up before finals watched countless matches even while over eight months pregnant and has endured my goofy side on the road with my team for over 20 years. I also want to thank my four wonderful children for supporting me, always eager to explore new places and creating wonderful memories along the way. Seeing my family cheering me on from the stands is a feeling I will cherish forever. I would also like to thank and recognize my loving parents, my dear sister, without whom nothing would be possible. A big thank you to all my former coaches who always guided me in the right direction. You have been wonderful. And to Swiss Tennis, who believed in me as a young player and gave me an ideal start. I really want to thank and acknowledge my amazing team. Ivan, Danny, Roland, and particularly Seve and Pierre, who have given me the best advice and have always been there for me. Also Tony, for creatively managing my business for over 17 years. You are all incredible, and I've loved every minute with you. I want to thank my loyal sponsors, who are really like partners to me, 
and the hardworking teams and tournaments on the ATP Tour who consistently welcomed all of us with kindness and hospitality. I would also like to thank my competitors on the court. I was lucky enough to play so many epic matches that I will never forget. We battled fairly, with passion and intensity, and I always tried my best to respect the history of the game. I feel extremely grateful. We pushed each other and together we took tennis to new levels. Above all, I must offer a special thank you to my unbelievable fans. You will never know how much strength and belief you have given me. The inspiring feeling of walking into full stadiums and arenas has been one of the huge thrills in my life. Without you, those successes would have felt lonely rather than filled with joy and energy. The last 24 years on tour have been an incredible adventure. While it sometimes feels like it went by in 24 hours, it has also been so deep and magical that it seems as if I've already lived a full lifetime. I've had the immense fortune to play in front of you in over 40 different countries. I have laughed and cried, felt joy and pain, and most of all, I have felt incredibly alive. Through my travels, I've met many wonderful people who will remain friends for life, who consistently took time out of their busy schedules to come and watch me play and cheer me on around the globe. Thank you. When my love of tennis started, I was a ball kid in my hometown of Basel. I used to watch the players with a sense of wonder. They were like giants to me, and I began to dream. My dreams led me to work harder, and I started to believe in myself. Some success brought me confidence, and I was on my way to the most amazing journey that has led to this day. So I want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart to everyone around the world who has helped make the dreams of a young Swiss ball kid come true. Finally, to the game of tennis, I love you and will never leave you. And in the end, I think that's what it was all about for Roger Federer. That's what kept him going for as long as it did. The love of the sport, the love of tennis. It was a career that spanned more than 24 years, starting in Stad in Switzerland a couple of days after he won the Wimbledon Boys singles and doubles title. It's a time that I remember well because I was in Stad at the time. I was the ATP's communications manager. The first person to ever interview him as a professional, albeit he was only 16 and it was just for the ATP's media guide. But you could already tell before even watching him play that he was a bit special. And when you saw him play, my word, you knew that he was a bit more than special. Anyway, more of my thoughts later. I've also spoken to Simon Briggs, who's covered Federer for The Telegraph for many years. But first, let's hear from my co-hosts, Catherine Whitaker and Matt Roberts. We're unable to record in person just at the moment in the way that we have done for the last 10 years of Roger Federer's career and throughout the lifespan of this podcast because, well... We've just been at the US Open for the last three weeks and we're supposed to be on holiday. But despite the post-New York jet lag, Catherine and Matt have sent me voice notes from their holidays to talk about how they'll remember Federer and the effect he had on them. Roger Federer retiring. Gosh, um, where to start? Well, firstly, thanks, Roger, for picking, on a personal level, probably the worst possible time for you to make such a, a mic drop announcement my mind is hazy with jet lag and thoroughly saturated with tennis after the last three weeks. So somehow I am making a tiny bit of room in there for the retirement of one of the greatest players the sport has ever seen. What a journey. I 
I personally, again, me personally, I'll make it all about me. What a journey I went on with Roger Federer over the course of his career. When he first came on the scene, I remember, I remember vividly him being picked as a favourite for 2002 Wimbledon. And, of course, him losing in the opening round to Mario Ancic, a match that I was on centre court for, my first ever centre court experience. And then I transitioned into a period of being a very big fan of Andy Roddick and thus hating Roger Federer because he was persistently thwarting would-be multiple Grand Slam champion Andy Roddick. And yes, he would have won more slams were Federer not around, but equally Federer made him better. And I think Roddick himself is philosophical in that way about their rivalry or non-rivalry, unrivalry as Chris Clary would put it. And then sort of Andy Roddick's threat faded a little and I just was jaded with Roger Federer and how much better he was than everyone else apart from at the French Open. It was during that period that David and I had our biggest ever row, I think, about the jacket that Federer wore for his 2009 uh, Wimbledon triumph over Andy Roddick, of course. I used a derogatory word to describe what he looked like wearing that jacket and David wasn't having it. And it's probably a good thing that he saved me from myself in the end. It's not that bad a word, by the way, just in case you're wondering what I called Roger Federer. It's not that bad a word, I promise. And then sort of the the in and out years of Roger Federer. And I'm abbreviating here, of course. It's, um, It's a long career to try and sum up. But then we come to 2017 Australian Open when I and he have gone on a remarkable journey because I was screaming as loud for him throughout that tournament and in that final as as anybody else. I wanted it for him as if he was some broke, hard-up bloke that had never won a slam before. I was desperate for it for him. And that's not because I'm not a Rafael Nadal fan. I absolutely am. But it seemed to me at the time that Nadal had more time on his side than Federer did. At the time, in my mind, that was Federer's last chance. Of course, he went on to defy the odds and win another couple after that Australian Open 2017. But Nadal is going to outlast Federer. Um, And uh, I I think, I mean, this is terrible recency bias, isn't it? But I think I will remember that 2017 Australian Open above anything else in my personal collection of Roger Federer memories. How, you know, and this makes me feel of, think about the Jimmy Connors story that we told and his run as a 38 slash 39 year old to the semifinals in New York in in 1991 and those beautiful words of Mary Carrillo about wanting one last time, you know, and somehow trying to make something old new again. Well, that's what Roger Federer did. Um, in Melbourne in 2017. He made something that had become very old, which was Roger Federer winning Grand Slam titles. At one point for me, it became so old as to be totally boring. He made it new again. And uh, that was incredibly special. So 
it's a funny one. Of course, I'll miss him, but I also guess I guess have already adjusted to him not being a, a factor, a feature of the of the tennis world. So I won't miss him quite as much as if he'd sort of stopped at the top, as it were. But of course, the whole tennis world will miss him. Those final words of his in the statement: um, "I'll never leave you." It's very cryptic, isn't it? I don't know exactly what it means, but I think what I would love to see is Federer sort of being involved in some sort of honorary player council, a united player council of both men's and women's tennis, just sort of overseeing the tours, overseeing the sport and looking out for its interests. I would love that. But who knows? I'm not sure he even knows what that last line means other than that he loves the sport too much to to leave it all together um and that's very special and very apt isn't it because he loves tennis and that's what shone through in the way he played tennis and the way he approached the sport and i think that's what i'm drawn to most in people people that just love the sport and the competition so roger damn your timing but Thanks for telling us and see you down the road somewhere. Hello, listeners. Well, this is a bad time for me to be having a week off, isn't it? Uh, Tennis truly cannot be stopped. Just when you think there's a little nook where you can take a break, Roger Federer announces his retirement. I'm still in New York, so the news dropped not long after I'd woken up. It obviously sent the tennis podcast WhatsApp group spinning. The words emergency podcast were flying about. Uh, David very kindly didn't want to interrupt my time off. But at the same time, I just had some things I wanted to say. So here I am. I've always thought of myself as a tennis fan, above a fan of any individual player. But Federer was the guy I would always go out of my way to watch live. I would literally rearrange my life to watch him play. There was probably a a 10-year stretch of his career where I barely missed a single match. You know, you can show me a a photo of Federer and I can probably identify the tournament he's playing, the year he's playing, and the results he had in it uh, based just on what he's wearing. Just because so many of his matches and shots and moments are imprinted on my mind. I feel like I've spent so much of the last week talking about how everything's going to be fine in men's tennis because of Alcaraz and Sinner and Tiafo, etc, etc. And of course, I do still think that. But this hurts. This news hurts. Um, and that's even knowing for a while that it was coming you're still not quite ready for that final moment, I suppose. Uh, Gosh, I was just reading yesterday about how Carlos Alcaraz was saying that it's his dream to play against Federer, and now he won't get that chance. Uh, I did think Federer would try to play on for longer, hit some of his favourite spots like Basel and Wimbledon one last time. So as prepared for the news as I was it was also a little bit of a shock Uh, we'll learn more at Labour Cup from Federer himself I suppose but clearly the the knee is just letting him go on no further which is sad 
but he has had a long, incredible run. Uh, when I think about Federer, I think about how he lifted the sport up in so many different ways. Firstly, just with his tennis, you know? Beauty is not the goal or the objective of sport, but Federer managed to combine beauty and excellence in a way which is just so incredibly rare. I could watch him hit tennis balls forever. You know, he's, he's a genius. The serve, which could hit any corner of the box off the same ball toss. The forehand whip that he had, the elegant backhand, the, the knifed slice, the soft hands, the, the movement, which was as smooth as water. Uh, the flicks of the wrist, just every match there would be something to make you gasp and make you remember the match for. Um, I was thinking sport, if you can control time, then you have such such an advantage. And when I watched Federer play live, in particular, I would realise just how early he took the ball to take that time away from his opponents and how when the ball was on his side of the net, he would he would slow time down with his precise footwork to get in position and his incredible hand skills. Um, yeah, his tennis just hit different. It was cleaner, smoother, crisper. Um, and you could also tell how much he loved it. There was a joy to his tennis. Uh, he made it look effortless, even though it wasn't. And actually some of my favourite Federer moments were those where you saw the fighter and the competitor in him, particularly the 2017 Australian Open, of course. He also lifted the sport up simply in the way he carried himself, with such class, on court, off court, doing press conferences in multiple languages. And basically, Federer making headlines was good news for tennis, for TV audiences, for ticket sales, for sponsors. For podcasters, you know, we, we'd always get a boost if, if Federer was playing and particularly doing well. And thirdly, and perhaps most interestingly, is the way he lifted up the standard in men's tennis. And in doing so, honestly, helped to create this two-headed monster in Nadal and Djokovic, who would ultimately both surpass him in, in terms of, of majors one. It's a great what if, you know, because Nadal and Djokovic doubtless would have become all-time greats without Federer. They just, they just would have. They've got so much internal drive and motivation and they're so good. But would they have become this great? I don't know. And I don't think so. They had Federer to look to, to compare themselves against, to reach uh, this big three era... Federer started it all. Within six years of winning his first major, he'd overtaken Pete Sampras's hall. That is absolutely insane. The most dominant stretch in men's tennis history, I think. Um, so, so quickly he became the undisputed goat of men's tennis. He, and he enjoyed that, that title for so long. And yet what's really interesting is that he's also 
been a current player living through the era where he's been overtaken. I don't think anyone else you can say that about. And it probably does change a little bit how we see him, but it doesn't change his impact on the sport and his legacy. Um, With Federer's announcement coming so close to Serena's farewell at the US Open, this is just 12 days later, I think, than her last match. I think Federer's retirement will always be tied up with Serena's. It's been the month where tennis lost two of its all-time greats and was forced to, to reckon with that fact. There's a stat which I absolutely love that Federer and Serena have never lost on the same day of a Grand Slam tournament. That's always just felt so perfect to me, you know? Like, these are two giants. Uh, their power is such that they couldn't possibly both be taken down on the same day. You know, tennis just wouldn't be able to cope. And yet, you know, here they are, announcing their retirements, not quite together, but oh so close to each other. And it feels like a sort of violence to suddenly lose so much greatness from the sport. It's not quite over yet. Like Serena, Federer will get a send-off, not at a major, but at the Lever Cup. I'll be there, and I just know it's going to be very, very special. Yeah, I think you're right, Matt. It is going to be special, and we will be there, as Matt says, at the Labour Cup to see him off into retirement and to enjoy his sport, his tennis, one last time. The reaction, frankly, amongst other tennis players today on social media has been absolutely extraordinary. The outpouring, the pretty much universal love being shown for Roger Federer and the the adoration, just the general awe that he inspired throughout the locker room on both tours, both men's and women's tours, pretty unparalleled, I would say. Uh, And it wasn't, it's not just appreciation of what he was as a tennis player, what he's been as, as somebody who's contributed to the sport. I think people are just in awe of what he was able to do as players who were trying to play tennis at the highest level, they would look at him and just be open-mouthed at at what he was able to do and uh, just idolised him, quite honestly. Petra Kvitova wrote, Roger, you've always been such a huge inspiration to me. Your elegance, your grace, your beautiful game. I've always held you in the highest regard and want to congratulate you for an amazing career. Tennis won't be the same without you. Thank you. Billie Jean King wrote, Roger Federer is a champion's champion. He has the most complete game of his generation and captured the hearts of sports fans around the world with an amazing quickness on the court and powerful tennis mind. He's had a historic career with memories that will live on and on. Milos Raonic wrote, Thank you for doing more for tennis than any single individual. Thanks to you, competitors and fans across the world get to experience and enjoy it all over the world. Congratulations on your achievements and the people you continue to impact in and away from tennis. Lots of other messages from all around the world. Sachin Tendulkar, the cricketer, paid tribute to Roger Federer amongst many, many others. And a a personal favourite of mine from Andy Roddick after he'd uh, said some very nice words about Roger Federer. Roddick tweeted, Hmm, seems like a good time to start training for Wimbledon. (laughs) And uh, always quick with the line, old Andy Roddick. So let's hear from Simon Briggs now 
Simon has covered Roger Federer's career for the last decade. And I started off by asking him how much of a surprise it was to hear this news. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Yeah, well, I heard maybe a couple of minutes, not much more than that, but a couple of minutes before the announcement, I heard there was word coming that him, it might be the day. And I must say, as soon as I had that not confirmed, I thought that sounds absolutely likely to be true just because of the timing, because of the Labour Cup, because of the word from Switzerland last week about the fluid on the knee. I just thought that's going to be true. Uh, and actually, I was uh, dragging myself off the sofa where I'd been trying to recuperate from the US Open and, and thinking, right, uh, time to uh, make another push. Yeah, yeah, that that that's the same for all of us, I think, at the moment, isn't it? Um, you mentioned the fluid on the knee. For, what what do you know about the the physical condition he was in? Because in in his statement, he makes it clear that this is a physical decision. Really, the the mind the mind is willing, the heart is willing, the body just isn't willing. I mean, how how long do you do you reckon he's known this for? Look, I don't really have much inside information on that, but I mean, it all makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, he's had so much trouble with that joint and he's not getting any younger. Um, he's had a lot of trouble with the rehab. It's just, um, I know he's been 
floating above logic for so long that we assume that he can continue to do impossible things forever, but uh, he is 41. So <laughs> um, there comes a time, doesn't there, where you're just, uh, your body isn't going to be able to keep up. If you've got a, a weakness, which for many years he didn't have one, did he? But uh, after his long time uh, as a non-surgical uh, victim, somebody who'd never been under the knife, uh, there was eventually a moment when it caught up. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, look, it's impossible for us to, for us to know timings, and I, I, I suspect he's probably known for a while that this is the situation and this is not going to happen for him, and it was just a question of picking the right time. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he if he saw some of those US Open matches last week and just thought well, I, I might be able to play tennis again at a level, but I can't do what they're doing. I mean, you, you, when, you, when you think of what Alcaraz and Sinner were doing, for instance. Yeah, and I'm just trying to write a breakdown of what makes him such, such a great player. And people always talk about the hands, but for a tennis player on that level, the feet are almost more important. It's like um, a bit like uh, that golfing saying, you know, uh, drive for show, putt for dough. It's actually the feet that make a great tennis player before the hands because you've got to get to the ball. And if you're not in the right position, it doesn't matter how good your technique is on your ground stroke. And his movement was a huge part of his strength. Combined with the fact, I, I was writing a little bit about the court that he trained on for most of his um, professional life in Dubai. There was virtually no run back. So he couldn't even if he wanted to, he couldn't drop deep. He always had to come forward. He always had to play inside the court. And it's a, a lesson that he understood and, and made work for him. So that kind of offensive movement, um, that was something which as soon as he didn't have the edge um, coming into the court, he was just not going to be ineffective. Mm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you, you've seen... A lot of players come and go, both in tennis and, and in other sports. And most recently, of course, we've had Serena. And, and the, the, the recency of that is quite, quite extraordinary when you consider just how closely their careers have aligned. I mean, Serena came along before Federer in terms of competing at the very highest level. They're retiring within days of each other. But I just wonder, just in terms of reaction from people you've been surrounded by your your desk for instance we'll get on to talk about the actual pieces you're you're putting in the paper for tomorrow and on the online but in terms of the reaction of the wider sporting world and the, and the world generally how does the reaction of Roger Federer retiring compare to everybody else well we've immediately gone for a piece by my colleague Oliver Brown on why he's the greatest sportsman in history so we're not underplaying it. Um, also, uh, I, I refer you to my other former colleague and in this podcast, uh, occasional Charlie Eccleshare, who I think, tweeted that uh, it was simultaneously not surprising at all and a, a massive shock. Um, and I guess that's that's how we all feel. It's um, a historic moment. Um and we're certainly going to be giving it the treatment in the in the coming days, but uh, there's not going to be many other stories in the sporting world to keep up with this one. You mentioned Oliver Brown is writing a story about why he's the greatest. Well, 
I'm sure there'll be a lot of people listening to this that maybe aren't. Uh, look, most people are Federer fans, but there are people who are not. There are people who are Novak Djokovic fans or Rafa Nadal fans who would say, well, hold on, my guy has won more Grand Slam titles than he has. Why would he be the greatest? Well, I think the centre of this piece, which I haven't seen yet, I'm not sure whether we, I don't think we published it quite yet, but it'll be up there soon, um, is the sort of cleanness, perhaps, of of the whole story, the absence of any rancour, the, the the lack of controversy, the respect for the game and his opponents, all these things that, that make it just impossible to find anywhere to attack him, I guess. I mean, I, on top of that, I would say, um, you know, I was writing in one of my pieces that he may not be the greatest tennis player who's ever lived, but he may be the most beloved. I, I remember particularly the moment he walked onto centre court um, for the 100-year celebration just a couple of uh, months ago. Um, and the reaction was uh, even greater than any of the other amazing champions who who'd preceded him. It was on a different level. Uh, and I've been on that court, I suppose, and, and watched him um, inspire people so many times. I'm so fortunate, really. And and for me, he was you know, the most enjoyable to watch just on a, on a purely artistic level. And uh, people have their different views on that. And uh, I appreciate all the big four in their different ways. But uh, the creativity and that uh, sense of fun, the sense that he was always playing a game, he never made it into a war. That that was what stuck with me. What what was he like to deal with? You you've interviewed him a couple of times, I think. What what? How did you find him? Yeah, I mean, he's just incredibly good at putting you at your ease. Really, um, I did a big interview with him in Miami. I remember we walked through those t- tunnels underneath the stadium, and then we found a breakout area, and he kind of collapsed onto the sofa and kind of hooked his leg over the. The side of it and and just sort of lounge there like a sort of panther and there was another time when I think he gave me the first interview after his twins were born and uh, that was you know quite a privilege to be able to report on that and another time I think I went to Chicago to speak to him about tennis politics um, around the Labour Cup which was an area in which he was quite cautious <laughs> Swiss neutrality tended to come through uh, again, uh, I suppose that comes back to the uh, Oliver Brown um, point that, that he, he evaded controversy and he evaded rows and bust-ups throughout the entirety of his career. The only time, I suppose, that I can remember anything that was a bit off-piste happening would be the uh, the ATP finals moment when he and Stan Wawrinka found themselves having a, a set-to in, the, um, in the gym alongside the court after Merka had... Uh, made some comments from the, from the stands. That was uh, pretty much the only um, kind of moment of, of beef that I can remember in his career. Perhaps Rafael Nadal as well, uh, saying that he was, uh, what, he played the gentleman and leaving the rest of us to, to burn. That was the only other one, I think, when they were having a debate about rankings systems in 2011. But you have to look so hard, don't you, to go through the card and find anything that wasn't, uh, you know, spirited and and upbeat and and i think if you asked either of those two now they'd both be 
just glowing about him, wouldn't they? I mean, uh, yeah, totally. And I mean, Vavrinka and him were on brilliant terms a week later. If you remember, they were uh, giggling their heads off having won the Davis Cup in uh, Lille. So I think that that uh, contretemps lasted about half an hour before they were reconciled. And uh, yeah, I mean, Rafa and and Roger, it's unbelievable the fact that they've uh, maintained this really competitive relationship, um, competitive rivalry for 15 years with barely a crossword. And um, they seem to have placed the uh, the sport, um, respect for the sport, respect for each other above what you would normally turn the self-interest of, of wanting to, to get one up on your big rival. Two, two final points. I mean, on a personal level, Simon, uh, do, do you have a view on the greatest of all time debate do you are you are you comfortable with just looking at the numbers and letting those judge for themselves or do you have a personal opinion here well I certainly if I was asking asked for somebody to play for my life I'd definitely choose Novak and I think his numbers are superior even if he hasn't gone past the number of slams that Federer has won but he's been the dominant player for this entire past decade. But I, I guess it's a question of, again, who would you want to play for your life and who would you want to watch? And uh, there's only one answer to that second question. And, and and what you mentioned, a couple of the pieces we're going to be reading on the Telegraph and that the the outlet is giving it the treatment, in your words. What what does that mean? What what are we going to be seeing? What, what angles are you as a group looking at? Yeah, so I've done a piece on the rivalry with Rafa to go alongside Ollie's piece on his standing in the world of sports. Uh, and I'm going to break down the areas that made him so special in a list piece. I think Molly's Molly McElwee is looking at where he might go from here, what his interests and, and career decisions might be like after retirement. Such as? And I, I guess, you know, he's, he's going to be involved in the Labour Cup for some time. You'd think that he would want to be some sort of stakeholder in the, in the big tennis picture. I don't, I don't see him necessarily running for office in the political world, but if he did, you think he would get in, but uh, the world's his oyster really, isn't it? I think uh, there's enough people out there who subscribe to Ollie's view that he's the greatest athlete of all time to, to make his post-retirement career pretty cushy. And then I think tomorrow uh, maybe I'm going to turn my attention to the landscape of the game where we left what the implications for tennis post Roger how will it cope which is uh, interesting and uh, obviously we collaborated on that um, post US Open uh, review podcast for the Friends of the Tennis podcast this week and it's interesting that it's, his retirement has dropped immediately after such a fantastic event um, which gives it a slightly different spin than it might otherwise have but at the same time, I think that's quite a sort of tennis bubble perspective. That's how we who follow the game closely will look at it. And to the floating voter, they will see a bigger hole perhaps than the kind of cognoscenti, if you see what I mean. Yeah, he certainly does leave a big hole, even if he hasn't been playing the sport for the last year. There was always the feeling that, well, you know, he hasn't retired. He said he wants to make a comeback and... With Federer, as as with Serena Williams a few weeks ago, you always just felt anything was possible. And, uh, well, when the door is finally closed, it does leave you feeling a bit hollow, I I find, with champions of this type. Um, 
we've we've had the most incredible outpouring of emotion as you would expect uh, from fans of Roger Federer on social media I, I put out a tweet earlier on today just asking people to try to remember when and where they first saw Roger Federer and what went through their mind at the end I mean we've had hundreds of replies in a few hours I've just picked out a few here Gustavo Perez said I was a ball boy for the Miami Open and was on court to see him play Tim Henman and there were four occasions when Henman not so quietly muttered this guy's too good. Nat said, I was channel surfing and I tuned past a Federer backhand on some sports channel. I changed the channel back immediately to see what that moment of brilliance was. I hadn't watched a single minute of tennis before then in my life. I've been hooked ever since. Joanne Penn says, against Sampras was the first time that I saw him, but it was him crying after winning Wimbledon in 2003 that stole my heart. It was the vulnerability he showed in achieving his dream. It's easy to think people are bound to win a slam, but they still have to do it to prove it to themselves above all else. And Stephen Malloy says, I saw Federer play in the 2007 Wimbledon final, and in that moment, I knew tennis was the sport for me. It's a lovely visual. It's a lovely image, Stephen, and many of those are. Uh, it's a um, good way of summing up Roger Federer because there wasn't there was more to him than just incredible tennis and Boy, was it incredible tennis. But there was a, a a really human side to him that he let you in on in several moments. That one you described from 2003 when he was talking to Sue Barker on Wimbledon Centre Gordon. And he showed the emotion that, well, I knew he already had and I had known for a long time because I'd seen him cry for many, many years, trying to become who he wanted to become. I feel pretty privileged to have been up close to Federer during that period when he was a young lad between the ages of 16 and 21 when he was desperately trying to reach the potential that everybody including me was saying that he had and and it's it must be a real burden to try to deal with that and and when he finally won that Wimbledon in 2003 it was just so interesting to watch this gifted boy become a man and a champion all at the same time and sort of quash those doubts inside as much as outside because the truth is until you do it you don't know how to do it but once he had done it there was just no stopping him the rest of his career well I've watched like most people from afar in awe at what he's able to do on a tennis court but in the few interactions I have had with him since over the years one one thing has been clear to me that as a bloke he might have matured but he hasn't changed not the fundamental values and the decency anyway, not the sense of fun and silliness that were so endearing back in 1998 in that Gestad press room. He's always been a laugh. He's always said hello when he doesn't need to say hello. I always remember after he'd lost the 2015 US Open final to Novak Djokovic and he was absolutely devastated. And I'd not seen him all tournament long. I'd been covering the event for BBC Radio, but I was sent down on that very final day down into the corridors to see if I could get a sense of the atmosphere down there, maybe to grab an interview with the coach of Novak Djokovic or something like that. And Federer, I saw in the distance walking down the corridor towards me and the many, many other people that were collected there uh, waiting for, for somebody to give some reaction. And he was being led by bodyguards and all the rest of it. Uh, he might have been going to the, the anti-doping or 
just going to prepare for his press conference and that sort of thing. And he was head down, head bowed. And I deliberately sort of looked at the ground because I thought, well, I don't want to be looking like I'm trying to make eye contact (laughs) for the first time in goodness knows how long since I've seen him at a time like this. And he walked towards us. And by the time he got just before me, he just tapped me on the arm and he just said, hey, David. And that's it. I mean, you know, it could, I'm sure he would have done the same for anybody that he vaguely knew. But that's the kind of bloke he is. He doesn't just blank you, which many would. And I would perfectly understand had he had on that occasion, but he didn't. And I just thought, what a, what a classy thing to do. What a nice thing to do. Statistically, he didn't win as many Grand Slam titles as Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic. And if that's how we measure greatness, and I can understand why people do, as I mentioned to Simon, then he's not the greatest. But I'm not actually sure that really matters with a player like Federer. With someone like him, to me, it's about how they make you feel when watching them. And I've never felt about anyone the way I feel when I watched Roger Federer play tennis. He could do things that no one else could, in a way that no one else could, and the memories he created along the way, well, they'll last for a lifetime. Mine anyway. So this was a special emergency edition of the Tennis Podcast. We're supposed to be on holiday. We have recorded two podcasts over the last couple of days since the US Open. My audio diary and our US Open review show featuring voice note memories from Pam Shriver, Mary Carrillo, Chris Clary and others. Looking back on the US Open from their vantage points, that podcast is available now. To listen to them, and the Q&A podcast that Catherine Matt and myself recorded on our final day in New York a couple of days ago, you need to become a friend of the Tennis Podcast subscriber. If you're already a friend, you can enter our competition to win a trip to the Australian Open, courtesy of the lovely people at AO Travel, but you've only got one day, as I talk to you right now, until that competition ends. If you want to become a friend and enter, you can still do so. It's going to all end September the 16th. That's tomorrow, Friday at 11.59pm UK time. So check out the show notes to this show and you'll be able to become a friend and uh, enter that competition and get access to those podcasts that I've already mentioned. We'll be back as well next week to cover the final event of Roger Federer's career, the Labour Cup. Until then... It's goodbye from us. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 